So if you were to guess, the number one reason why non-believers don't believe, what would your guess be? Would it be a lack of knowledge, that, that, that people don't believe in Christ because of lack of knowledge? Surely there is some biblical evidence for that answer. That's one of the reasons why we are called to proclaim the gospel. One of the reasons why we are called to share the gospel with everyone we know. Why we are called, every single one of us, to be a certain type of missionary. Maybe not sent by a church and sponsored by a church, but every single one of us are to do the work of an evangelist. You might not be an evangelist, but you are commanded to do the work of an evangelist. Now, I know how intimidating that can feel sometimes. I would say I'm not an evangelist, but I am commanded to do the work of an evangelist, which means I need to share the gospel. I need to share the gospel with people that I don't know, because surely there are some people that don't believe in Christ simply because they don't know the gospel. But I don't think that's the majority or the main reason why the majority of non-believers don't believe. You might say, well, it's confusion. That they, don't, they might have heard the gospel, but they don't quite understand the gospel. And yes, we also see this demonstrated through Scripture a little bit, that surely there are some people that just don't quite understand the gospel. And this is why uh, in Peter he commands us to, uh, to share or to have an apologetic for the faith that we need to not only share the gospel, but we need to be clear when we share the gospel. That we need to have a clear apologetic. That when people come up with arguments against the gospel, we need to be able to clearly explain the gospel. So yes, there are some that don't believe based on a, la or based on a lack of knowledge. There are some that don't believe based on confusion. But I don't think either one of those represents the majority of disbelief. I would think, or I will pose today, that the majority of disbelief, the Bible argues that the majority of people that reject Christ don't reject Christ out of confusion, they don't reject Christ out of a lack of knowledge, but they reject Christ out of rebellion. Disbelief is a result not of confusion, not of a lack of knowledge, but a result of rebellion. I could put it another way. Disbelief is a result of rebellion, not confusion. And I think the Bible makes that argument. And that's what we'll get into today as we look at Revelation 6. So we're still in our hopeful series as we study Revelation. We called it hopeful because we of all people should be full of hope. Revelation explains to us what, how it ends. Christ wins. In the end, we can trust God. In the end, we know what God is going to do. We can trust God. And though we may struggle here, though we may run into strife, though we may not always have a perfect life, we know that in the end, God wins. And so of all people, we should be filled with hope. We should be filled with hope when the political party that we love loses. We should be filled with hope when our country still turns away from God. We should be filled with hope even when our country begins to collapse. Let's say some people want a civil war. Let's say a civil war happens. Civil war is nasty, by the way. I don't think we actually want that. We would 
absolutely be devastated. We would find hardships worse than what we find right now. But let's say that happens, and we all end up struggling in famine and war. We can still have hope. Because our hope isn't in this country, our hope isn't in the economy, our hope isn't in a political party, our hope is in Christ. And in the end, Christ wins. Christ is victorious. So we can find hope in Christ. So we're picking up in Revelation 6, the first two chapters of the second vision. So if you're not familiar with Revelation, there are Four visions. You outline Revelation through the different four visions. We're in the second vision. The first two chapters of the second vision are dedicated to how God is worthy. He is beyond our thoughts. He is beyond our imaginations. He is worthy to be a righteous judge. The first two chapters. We could have spent, we only spent two weeks. We could have probably spent two months on the first two chapters, describing how great God is. So in that context, we jump into Revelation 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And he opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And there were gi- they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the fig tree, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the king of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every slave and free hid themselves in the cave and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? 
So we're getting into, we've gone through the description of the throne room, we've gone through the description of the Lamb, who is Jesus, who is worthy, and we get to him finally opening up these seals. The opening up the seals is him beginning the judgment on man. Now, there are a couple different ways that people have started to uh, interpret this. There are going to be three different sets of seven judgments. If you remember, seven is that perfect number. So you will have three different sets. We'll have the seals the trumpets, and the bowls. So we've got a couple different ways that people interpret this. Uh, Dr. Grant Osborne, uh, he wrote uh, Baker's Exp- Expository Commentary on the New Testament, which is kind of a mouthful to say, but it's actually one of my favorite commentaries. He, he believes that this is what's called a cyclical. So uh, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls have seven different events in each, and each one are describing the same event. So what I mean by that is, Uh, The first seal describes the same event as the the first trumpet, which also describes the same event as the first bowl. I hope that that is uh, displayed really well on that. Uh, I don't know. It can be confusing, but that's, that's his viewpoint, that each one describes the same events from a different viewpoint. So the seals describe the same event as the bowls and the trumpets describe just from different viewpoints. And his big argument for this, I don't want to get too caught up into this, but his big argument is that it seems like the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, and the sixth bowl describes the end. And so how can you have three different ends? Well, in his argument, you don't have three different ends. They're just different perspectives on the same ending. So the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, and the sixth bowl all describe the same end just from different viewpoints. Now that's Dr. Grant Osborne. He is uh, more knowledgeable than I am and he's probably more intelligent than I am so I'm not going to put up too many different arguments with him. I disagree with him though so let's go to the next slide. The next slide is from Dr. Thomas Constable. He worked at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's really well known. He kind of developed this. uh, I don't really want to look up at the top too much but uh, down at the bottom right here, we see the tribulation. And he, he's got this idea that is a telescoping viewpoint of the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And what we mean by that is if you think about a telescope, each part of the telescope is held within the next part, right? And so he would describe, you know, the, fir, the, the seals, one through sixth, are their own thing. But within the seventh seal you'll find the seven trumpets. Now the first one through six trumpets are their own thing found within the seventh seal, but the seventh trumpet is going to withhold the seven bowls. So that is the telescoping view of how you can interpret the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. I kind of buy into this a little bit more. uh, And... I'll tell you why, I just, I, I, I don't think there's enough of a correlation between the first seal, the first trumpet, and the first bowl, second, and so on and so forth, that makes it seem like they're all the same thing. So I, I don't buy into each sixth is the end. I think that each sixth is the beginning of a new era, is what I would say that when you get to the sixth seal, it's the end 
of one era, and now you're going to begin into a next era, which will contain the trumpets, and then when you get to the sixth trumpet, you'll end the trumpets, and you'll begin the bowls. That's how I read into it. That's how I would interpret it. You're more than welcome to disagree with me. Smarter people have. More knowledgeable people have. And there is a reason why there's several different interpretations on this. And that is because it's not exactly clear. So we shouldn't get too caught up into how to interpret the seals, the trumpets, and bowls. And in fact, I think we can get so caught up in trying to like map out end times that we actually lose the point of it all. So we can get so involved with creating diagrams and trying to figure out what everything means that we'll, we'll lose all of the purpose behind Revelation. In fact, I love uh, this next quote. Let's go to the next slide. I love this quote by Dr. Osborne who, who uh, wrote the, the cycles thing. And he wrote this actually about the four horsemen, but I think we can apply it to the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets, trump, trumpets and bowls. Reviewing the various interpretations assigned to the four horsemen tends to rob the contemporary reader of the dramatic nature of the vision itself. And we could just say, trying to overinterpret the trumpets, the seal, or the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls can rob us of the very nature of the vision itself. We can get so involved with trying to find the timeline that we would be robbed of the nature of the vision itself. It is good to place oneself back in one of the seven churches and listen to the visions as they are being read. Instead of discussing the probable significance of each of the four colored horses, those first listeners would have recoiled in terror as war, bloodshed, famine, and death galloped furiously across the stage of their imagination. And so that's what I would invite us to do as we study through Revelation. Let, it's okay to discuss timelines, and it's okay to have an opinion on timelines, but let's not get so caught up in a timeline that we lose focus of what the Revelation was really telling us. There's a reason why God kept it vague, but there's also a reason why he gave us certain points. So let's not lose the point. And what is the point? Let's go to the next slide. The next point is, and we see this in the first two chapters of this vision, God is worthy and righteous to judge. He spends two chapters explaining that to us. And based on that, disbelief is a result of rebellion, not confusion. God is worthy and righteous to judge. And based on that, disbelief is a result of re rebellion, not confusion. On that backdrop, let's go ahead and we're going to dive in. Now I watched. So after he describes the, the throne room and after he describes Jesus and all that he sees, he watches the lamb, the only one who is worthy to open the seals. He watches the lamb open one of the seven seals. So the lamb begins to take action. We see the worship. We see his righteousness. Now he's going to take action. And he takes action by opening the first of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures. If you remember in the throne room, there's four living creatures surrounding the throne. This is one of the four living creatures. Say with a loud voice like thunder. Now notice, these four living creatures are not God, and yet they also have a voice like thunder. So there is some power, not all power. They're not, 
all-powerful, but there is some power within these four living creatures. They have voices like thunder. And he says, come. So this living creature has some type of authority, but the only authority he has is that which is given to him by Christ. So he says, come. Now he's not talking to, to John. He's talking to uh, one of the horsemen. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Now, white in the time of Rome, was a, a, a white horse was a symbol of victory. A Roman general, uh, after winning a war, would come back and he would be thrown a parade, and in the parade he would ride a white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown. Now he's beginning to describe, there's a lot of debate about who this is a description of. I think it's a description of the Parthians. The Parthians were an enemy of the Romans. They were on the far east. They never conquered Rome, but they did defeat Rome both in 55 and 62. And they were known for their ability to ride horses and shoot bows at the same time. Now, I don't know about you, I've shot a bow a couple times. Uh, I cannot stand still and shoot a bow with any amount of accuracy. Uh, I'm sure some of you bow hunters can. I hope some of you bow hunters can. But can you ride a horse and shoot a bow with accuracy at the same time? That is a whole new level. It reminds me of like the Lord of the Rings, you know, when you watch those and you see I think it's Legolas that's just throwing bows everywhere, and you're like, how on earth? Well, this is what the Parthians are like, right? They're just throwing bows everywhere, and, or arrows everywhere. The bow is actually what you use. Don't be confused, Aaron. <laughs> so they're just throwing bows. No, but they're just shooting arrows everywhere. They're hitting their mark while they're riding the horse. So that's the picture that they're drawing on. So these are, these are people that, uh, that have gone up against Rome, and they have defeated Rome, on at least two occasions that we know of. And they were also given a crown. Now, we've talked about this crown a couple times. This is Stephanos. Uh, the, the term here is Stephanos, which is a crown that is earned. So this, this white horse, this rider on this white horse, has a bow, and he has earned a crown, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now there's, once again, a lot of debate. Some people think that this is Jesus because he's riding a white horse and because he's, con- he's coming out to conquer. I think a more uh, literal translation is, as a conqueror, he came to conquer. As a conqueror, he came to conquer. I don't think this is Jesus. And I don't think it's Jesus for a couple different reasons. Uh, but one is, Jesus is already victorious. He's not coming, by by the time we get to Revelation, he's not coming to conquer. He has already conquered. He is already victorious. But I think, in general, if you look at the bigger context, I don't think these uh, horsemen actually uh, represent actual horsemen. I think these horsemen represent man's depravity. And so this horseman right here who comes out is actually the depravity of man who is coming to conquer. Essentially, the horseman is coming. The, the, this idea of we're coming to conquer is, represents our desire to be our own God. Our desire to conquer other people, other nations, 
Maybe you have a desire to conquer institutions. We see desires to conquer come up in all sorts of different ways. So the legalist who comes into a church, who wants to control the church by legalism, and wants to control you through different rules and regulations, what are they doing? They're coming into a church to conquer and control that church. And we have a desire to conquer others. And it's because we think the only way to be valued, the only way to have value in life, is to conquer. And so you may not be a conqueror who conquers a kingdom, although I think given the opportunity, most people would try. I mean, we sit in our pews, and we think we're better than Hitler or Kim Jong-il, Mao Zedong. But in reality, if we were given the same circumstances, we could so easily be that same person. In arrogance, I think I'm better than Hitler. But if I was given power... I could easily be just as evil as Hitler. So we might not be striving for kingdoms, but there are conquests that we try. There, there are things we come after to conquer. I think when I, when I think about the sexes, and I think about Men, and men that I've known over the ages, and how they wanted to conquer someone of the opposite sex. And I've known so many men that thought they could be valued, that they could be more, if only they could conquer that girl. And I've known it on the other side too. The woman who thinks she's only as valuable as the man that she can get. So right here we have this horseman is describing us and our depravity to conquer, to be our own gods. To say, God, I don't care about how you value me. I will get my own value on my own terms. That's the first horse. The rest of the horses will be the result of our depravity. So the first horse describes our depravity. The rest of the horses we'll see are the consequences and the results of our depravity. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Bright red symbolizes blood. Its rider was permitted. And I want to stop here and talk for a second about this idea of permitted. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7, Paul writes that there has been a restrainer against our depravity. So there's this idea that God has restrained our depravity so that we don't just go off and kill everyone. If there wasn't a restrainer on our depravity, on our sin, on our wickedness, on our desire, there would be no civilization. We would be too busy killing each other and conquering each other. And so God has, in His grace, put a restrainer on humanity so that we do not actualize our full depravity. But what's happening now is with these horsemen, God is beginning. He's not even to the judgment stage yet. 
I think that's important for us to note. He's not even to the judgment stage. He's just now starting to lift the restrainer so that humanity's full depravity will be actualized. And what happens with our depravity is our desire to conquer one another goes so out of control that we begin to war with one another. So, he, so the, its writer was permitted to take peace from the earth. So that restrainer is being lifted and peace is no longer on earth, so that people would slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So our desire to conquer one another will produce war, and war unlike what we have ever seen. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures. Now, this would be the voice of God, because if you remember, uh, the, in the midst of the four living creatures was the throne. God is seated on the throne. So we can come to the uh, conclusion that this is God's voice. And I think it's also interesting that he says it seemed to be a voice. So he's not quite certain about this communication that is coming to him, he, but it seems like there is this voice that is communicating to him, and it's saying, a quart of wheat. Now, a quart of wheat was just enough wheat to live for one day. So it was one mill for a denarius. A denarius was one day's wage. And three quarts of barley. Barley wasn't as good as meat. It was considered uh, a lesser of the two. And three quarts would be just enough to feed a family for a day, for a denarius. So we see that you could either feed yourself with wheat for one day, or you could feed your family for a day on one day's wage. And do not harm the oil and wine. And essentially what he's saying here is, you'll be able to survive. There is a great famine coming on the land. People will be able to survive, but they won't be able to enjoy the good things of life. Oil and wine. We might think of other things in our day and age because we're so spoiled, but count those things out. It's going to be difficult. So our desire to conquer produces war. War produces famine. And we opened, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Now, pale here is a greenish pale, and it was the color that they used to describe someone who was sick or dead. So when we hear Pell, you know, we get all kinds of different ideas. This was a very distinct color of someone who was on, either on their deathbed or was dead. Which then gives its writer an appropriate name of death. So the horse looked like death, and its rider was death. And Hades followed him. Hades is the grave. So wherever death went, people were being put in the grave. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill. Now let's think about that for a second. There's almost 8 billion people on the world today. 
quarter of the eight billion. We're talking about possibly two billion people were killed with sword, meaning with war, and with famine, that was the result of war, and with pestilence. This term pestilence means a plague that is caused by war. So what happens is our, our own desires produce humanity's depravity and our desires produce this great war. And this great war, if you're not killed by the great war, then you're killed by the famine that comes after the great war. And if you're not killed by the famine that comes afterwards, you're going to be so weak that you're going to be killed by the plague that comes after the famine all because of our desires. And if you're not killed by the plague, good chances are you'll be killed by the wild beasts of the earth because you'll be so weak, you won't be able to defend yourself against the wild beasts. Two billion dead, and we're not even to the judgment. This is simply God lifting the restrainer of human depravity off so that we can actualize our full depravity, so that we can see how absolutely evil humanity is, how absolutely rebellious and how we love to shake our fist at God and say, forget you, God, we're going to be God now. We're going to do things our own way. We're not going to listen to you. Your ways are horrible. We are smarter than you. We're going to do it our way. And the result is two billion dead. War, famine, plagues, we're not even to judgment yet. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Under the altar is a reference to the altar of the burnt offering in, in the temple, and this would be where the sacrifices were made to God. So under where the sacrifices were made to God, he sees the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. So these are people who had, who had been killed, who had sacrificed their own life on behalf of God, and it was particularly for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne. So they were being witnesses, they were testifying to the, to the scripture, to the Bible, to God's word. Essentially what he's saying is that they weren't letting the culture twist God's word. They weren't letting the culture dictate what God's word was going to say. They weren't twisting it themselves, but they were standing true for God's word. And oftentimes, I think in America, we think we're doing the same thing. But too often, even as Christians... We say something like, what does that verse mean to you? Instead of, what does that, that verse mean? Do you see the slight difference there? What does that verse mean to you means, you know, you can make that verse mean just about anything. If you just twist it enough. If you just take it from your own perspective. You can make that verse mean anything. Versus, what does that verse mean means, what did God mean when he said we do this all the time, and, and once again, in our arrogance, we think we know better. But we see throughout history people twisting Scripture 
And really being the authority over Scripture instead of saying Scripture is the authority over me. So how do we ensure that we're doing this right? First, we come to Scripture with humility. Not thinking we already know what God has said. Not thinking we already know what this means. But coming to it saying, Lord, help me to understand what your word means. And then we study it. And we study it within its full context. We don't cherry pick verses. We don't pull scripture out and just have this one hanging by itself, dangling around saying, this is my life scripture. We hear this all the time, right? Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans you have made for me. Plans to prosper. And we're like, yes, that's my life scripture. But we forget the verse right before it, or the piece of scripture right before it that says, you're going you're gonna to be taken away to Babylon. You guys are about to suffer bad. Nobody wants that as their life verse. I always say Hosea 1-2 is, is one that nobody wants as their life verse. Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. No one's like, yes, Hosea 1-2, that's my life verse. That's what I want right there. No. We cherry-pick Scripture all the time. So instead of cherry-picking, we need to read it within context. And another thing that's helpful is to read it, look it back at the cultural context, but then say, what is the principle here? What's the principle God's trying to get at? So one of the most used imperatives in the New Testament is greet one another with a holy kiss. I watched today. Actually, Ben was preparing for children's church, so I was greeting today. Not a single one of you greeted me with a holy kiss. I was so disappointed. I was expecting holy kisses all around. There wasn't a single holy kiss. Well, we don't take the cultural command and then just follow it blindly. What we do is we look for the principle behind that command. Greet one another with a holy kiss means greet one another. Encourage there is a way that your eyes can light up when you see someone else. Greet each other with those lit up eyes that says, man, I'm so happy you're here. Instead of frowning while you greet someone like, man, I've got to deal with that person again. I can't believe Larry's back. Are you kidding me? No, it's light up and greet one another. We ignore that command all the time. You see someone in the grocery store, especially introverts, introverts, I'm looking at you. I am one of those introverts that like, I see someone in the store and I'm like, quick duck behind the ice cream aisle. <laughs> greet one another. It is so important for us to greet someone, especially those that get on your nerves. Greet one another. So that's the principle that we can pull from greet one another with a holy kiss. That's what we need to do. We need to look at the cultural context, pull out the principle, and then apply it to our life in this context. And it is through that that we don't twist God's word. That's what these guys were doing. They were staying true to the principles of God's word. They were studying God's word. They knew what God's word meant. They understood it. They applied it. And they lived it out. And it is for that reason that they were killed. It's another temptation for us is to let our culture begin to intimidate us. And I'm not saying that we need to stand with angry eyes. We don't need to stand out of anger and fight back with arrows at a culture that hates the truth of God's word. But we do need to stand in truth and in love. 
for God's word. And we need to emphasize that love part. And why do we emphasize the love part? Because we know in the end, Jesus wins. So that, that's what, who these people are. Uh, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, some people might contrast this because this seems kind of mean, right? Like, avenge us, Lord. So this seems kind of mean, and some people would contrast this with Jesus on the cross who said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or they might contrast this with uh, Stephen the martyr in Acts 7 when he's getting killed. And what does he say? He says, forgive them, Lord. And so you see that, that Stephen, he would be one of these people under the altar. He would be one of these martyrs. And what was he saying at the time? He was saying, forgive them. He was yelling cries of forgiveness, but we no longer see these cries of forgiveness. And so some people would say, well, that's not right. That's an ethical low. I don't think this is an ethical low, but a justice high. And what I mean by that is there, were, there is a time where we cry out, forgive, but there will also be a time where, ju- where God's justice comes in his fullness, and at that point it is a justice high. Meaning God's justice is so high, and God's regard for justice is so high, that justice will come. And for these martyrs, justice will be served. Now, how that should that play out in our lives right now is we should know that it's not that time yet. So as people are angry at us for standing on the truth of God's word, we cry out, God, forgive them. And we want forgiveness in their life. And we cry out, God, help me to love them right, even while they hate me. That's our job right now, knowing that there will be a time when God will serve his justice. And what does God respond to them? When they, are, when they were each given a white robe, so they're each given a white robe, the white robe re- represents purity and honor, and to the rest, and told to rest, rest means to be patient. The word rest, for rest here means to be patient. So to be patient a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And the whole idea here is that God is not going to be manipulated. God is has a plan, he is sovereign, and he will play out his plan. That's the idea behind all of that. When he opened the sixth seal, so we've got the first four seals is the the, the lifting of the restrainer. We get to see man's full depravity actualized. The fifth seal, we begin to see the martyrs, the witnesses. And then the sixth seal, I look and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And so what's happening now is this signifies God's judgment is coming. So unlike uh, the, the cyclical model, I would say this is the beginning of the judgment. This is the beginning of the end, and you can see how awesome it is that it even affects the, the heavens, even affects outer space, it affects the stars. It would be the, the description here of the uh, stars fell to the sky, to the earth as the fig tree sheds. You know, you could picture someone coming up to a fig tree with all this ripe fruit and just starting to shake it, and you could just see all the figs falling. And that, what an amazing meteor shower that would be, wouldn't it? It would put uh, the fear of God in us, I think. 
And not only that, but the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain, mountains were worshipped in those days. So think of Mount Olympus. And island. In Rome, there were several islands. Before John was caught up to heaven, he was on the island of Patmos, was removed from its place. Think of the awe. Think of how amazing this would be to watch. Think of how there would be no excuse to confess who God is. So for for centuries now, humanity has had a restrainer put on us by God so that we would not fully actualize our depravity. And think of the arrogance that we think that how great we are. We don't think we're really sinners. And so God lifts that, and he gives us the ability to repent at that point. Like, wow, God, I didn't realize how horrible humanity is. I didn't realize how horrible I am. And, and we could come forth in repentance. And yet, no one does. And then we see the earthquake and, and, and God's judgment beginning to come. And how awesome and, and absolutely mind-blowing this, these events would be. And yet... Do they repent? No, the reaction is the kings of the earth, meaning the rulers of the earth, and the great ones. The great ones were the governing officials. And the generals, meaning the military commanders, and the rich, and the powerful. The powerful sums up the first four categories. And everyone, slave and free. Basically everyone. It doesn't matter at this point. It doesn't matter how much wealth you've accumulated. It doesn't matter what kind of position of authority you have. It doesn't matter if you're even the lowest person on earth. Everyone hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So instead of repenting, instead of falling down and saying, God, we have sinned. We, we have turned against you. We have rebelled. What's the result? They hide. And not only do they hide, but then they call out. Fall, they call out to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne. So not only do they not want to repent, but they'd rather be crushed by the mountains than repent and say, God, you were right, we were wrong. From the face of Him who is seated on the throne. So they want to be hidden from the face of the One who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. The term wrath here means punitive justice. We've talked a lot about how God's discipline is always corrective, not punitive. So throughout our dispensation, throughout our time here on earth right now, God is constantly disciplining us to correct us, to turn us towards Him. And we can even see the first four horsemen are corrective. He's, he's letting us see our own depravity, and, and he's trying to turn people to repent still. But they recognize that the great day of punitive justice, where people will finally pay the price, has come. And who can stand? The way that is worded uh, assumes that no one can. So we've got... Man's depravity fully actualized. We've got the wrath of God, the, the first judgment coming, and yet there's still no repentance. I've heard people say, if God was real, why doesn't He show Himself? Why doesn't He reveal Himself? 
And we know that He did. He came in human flesh. He had signs. He even rose people from the dead to authenticate His claim that He is God, come in the flesh. And yet, what did man do? We killed Him. And He went willingly to pay the price for our sins so that on the great day of His wrath, we wouldn't have to experience that punitive justice. He will come again. And yet, even in the midst of that, people will still not repent. Disbelief is a result of rebellion, not of confusion. So where is your heart today? Are you still rebelling against God, trying to make Him in your own image, trying to form Him how you want Him to be? Or are you willing to submit yourself to Him and say, God, I have sinned. I have rebelled against You. And I want You to change me. Change my heart and forgive me of my sins. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you that you didn't leave us in the dark, fumbling around, trying to find the right way, but you have given it to us. You have given it to us clearly. And we pray that you would help us to understand it and submit to it. In your name we pray. Amen.